KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. He's some sort of free-thinking anarchist. I'd like to hear one single on satellite radio because you can't get on regular radio. White youth must choose sides now. We must either fight on the side of the oppressed or be on the side of the oppressor. Yeah, clean up this stinkhole. Do you think the Bill of Rights is a good thing or a bad thing? Um. Take your time, dear. No, 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 no. That's shut up. You had your 35 minutes. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. What is this? The uh, Republican fundraiser? Be quiet. We have no right to be quiet. I heartily endorse this event or product. And good morning. You are in tune to KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM, KUCI.org. Welcome to Justice or Just Us, the program that examines law, equality, public policy, and social activism. Glad to be with you on this January 12th, 2005, where today we are going to follow junk with a look at junk. Uh, In particular, we're going to be taking a look inside the urban underground of dumpster diving, trash picking, and street scavenging. Indeed, today on the program, Professor Jeff Farrell will be joining us on the telephone to talk about his newest book, Empire of Scrounge. Jeff uh, quit his job as a tenured professor, moved back to his hometown of Fort Worth, Texas, and began an eight-month odyssey of essentially living off of the street. His newest book, Empire of Scrounge, tells the story of this unusual journey into the sometimes illicit worlds of scrounging, recycling, second-hand living. Of course, the practice of dumpster diving raises many issues for the criminal justice system. Is it legal? Whose trash is it anyway? When an individual places their trash on the curb, is it still private property or does it belong to the public? If it belongs to the public, does the public mean the city? Or can anybody go through the garbage? If someone sets their recyclables out and a dumpster diver comes by and picks up those recyclables, are they stealing from the city? Lots of fun, interesting issues to take a look at. So that is coming up in just a few minutes. And of course, later in the program, we will take a look at the Orange County Peace Coalition calendar and uh, some of the headlines So definitely stick around today. It's going to be a fun program. Jeff Farrell always has some amazing insights into the alternative world of counterculture, underground living, and the like. So definitely stick around. This is KUCI's Justice or Just Us, where today we're going to be looking at junk.
we gathered a lot of intelligence. That intelligence was good, sound intelligence on which I made a decision. And in order to, you know, placate the critics and the cynics about intentions of the United States, we need to produce evidence, and I fully understand that, and I'm confident that our search will yield that which I strongly believe, that Saddam had a weapons program. Evidently, there's some skepticism here in Europe about whether or not I mean what I say. Stop whining. And, uh, and when, you know, we, we... What's the matter? Uh, Saddam Hussein clearly now knows I mean what I say. You must be very proud of yourself. And people in Iraq will know we mean what we say when we talk about freedom. Stop it! And uh, we will keep repeating it. You son of a bitch. The bum on the rods is hunted down as an enemy of mankind. The other is driven around to his club, is fetid, wined, and dined. And they who curse the bum on the rods as the essence of all that's bad will greet the other with a winning smile and extend the hand so glad. The bum on the rods is a social flea who gets an occasional bite. The bum on the plush is a social leech, blood-sucking day and night. <laughs> the bum on the rods is a load so light that his weight we scarcely feel, but it takes the labor of dozens of folks to furnish the other a meal. As long as we sanction the bum on the plush, the other will always be there. But rid ourselves of the bum on the plush and the other will disappear. Then make an intelligent, organized kick. Get rid of the weights that crush. Don't worry about the bum on the rods. Get rid of the bum on the plush. <laughs> oh, why don't you work like other folks do? How can I get a job when you're holding down to? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Oh, I went to a house and I knocked on the door. The lady said, Strambum, you've been here before. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Yeah, I went to that house. And I asked for some bread. The lady said, Strambum, the baker is dead. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. There I am in Spookaloo, city of magic, city of life, ensconced upon my front porch in broad daylight, long about noon, my rising time, drinking something of a potable beverage, playing my guitar long after everybody else in the neighborhood has packed up their lunchbox and gone off down to Kaiser Aluminum to put in their shift. This enrages my neighbors. <laughs> One in particular across the road, little retired banker fella, been known to cannonball his rotundity across the road and stand there and publicly berate me for my sloth and indolence. <laughs> Why don't you get a job, he said. Some of you heard that, I'll bet. Now me being hit to the Socratic method fires back a question. Why? <laughs> why, he says, taken aback. If you had a job, you could make three, four, five dollars an hour. I said, why, pursuing the same tack. Said, hell, you make three, four, five dollars an hour. You could have a savings account. Save up some of that money. I said, why? He said, well, you save up enough of that money, young fella. Pretty soon you never have to work another day in your life. 
said, hell, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> oh, I like my boss. He's a good friend of mine. That's why I'm starving out on the bread line. Had a new year, I'm a bum. Had a new year, bum again. Had a new year, give us a handout to revive us again. Yeah, and I like Jim Hill. He's a good friend of mine. Say, that's why I'm booming down Jim Hill's main line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. I guess pretty soon I'll be headed back to Spokane. Take up my task of wintering in, and I do a little uh, light farming or heavy gardening, whichever. <laughs> you know, that kind of farming is, is hard if you're in this traveling profession. And of course, when you sing like I do, you got to be ready to travel uh, with considerable alacrity. I got a Greyhound bus ticket in my back pocket all the time. But you see, quite often I'm not back in town in time for my plowing or my planting. That's awful. Now, one time I was sharing a platform in New York City, it was, with a bunch of high-powered labor politicos. Uh, it was a benefit for the farm workers, that's what it was. I remember Richard Chavez, Cesar's brother, was there. And so was Bella Abzug, former congresswoman from the state of New York. Remember her? Wonderful woman. I mean, she was loud, vociferous, big hats. She was yelling at that audience, righteous beef it was, about how the feds, the FBI, had been opening her mail for ever so long. Well, I knew the feds had been opening my mail for at least 20 years, reading all my personal radical mail, and it never bothered me because I figured them birds had to learn that stuff somewhere, and it might as, <laughs> might as well be from my mail. But then it occurred to me in my predicament, having the FBI open your mail might come in handy. I sent Sheila, my partner, a letter through the United States Mail. I said in it, for God's sake, don't plow up the backyard. That's where the guns are buried. <laughs> National Guard rolled up, dug up the whole backyard in time for me to come back and plant the damn thing. <laughs> oh, I went to a bar and I asked for a drink. He gave me a glass and he showed me the thing. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Whenever I get all the money I earn, the boss will be broke and to work he must turn. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. And why don't you save all the money you earn? If I didn't eat, I'd have money to burn. Hallelujah, bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Utah Phillips here on KUCI's Justice or Just Us doing Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have Utah Phillips on this program a few months ago when he played at McCabe's Guitar Shop in Santa Monica. And uh, that was really, really a fun, fun show. And he sang that song. So there you have it. Uh, hey, what a theme today. Junk, bums, and uh, now trash. When uh, Professor Jeff Farrell quit his job as a tenured professor and moved back to his hometown of Fort Worth, Texas, he uh, began an eight-month odyssey of living 
pretty much off of the street. Empire of Scrounge tells the story of this unusual journey while delving into the politics of street life. In this book, he goes inside the urban underground of dumpster diving, trash picking, and street street scavenging, say that three times fast, and uh, comes up with a really amazing and unique look at the uh, boundaries of legality and uh, counterculture. Here to talk about his new book, Empire of Scrounge, is Professor Jeff Farrell. He is a professor in the Department of Sociology, Criminal Justice, and Anthropology at Texas Christian University, and he's the author of so many amazing books. It's just hard to uh, to list them all, but most recently, Tearing Down the Streets, Adventures in Urban Anarchy, a book I wish I had uh, written. Uh, along with uh, the uh, landmark cultural criminology, crimes of style, and so many others. So uh, here on Justice or Just Us is Professor Jeff Farrell. Jeff, how are you today? Good. Thanks very much for having me on, Jarrett. This is, uh, you know, we've spoken so many times through email, so it's great to be able to uh, speak to you one-on-one. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. i got to ask you, how how did all of this begin? What brought about uh a desire to, I don't know if you want to talk about leaving your job, but uh, what brought about uh, the impetus for this experiment or project? How do you even refer to it? Well, I would say it was existential and political, which is always a, 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 a dangerous combination. Uh, listening to Utah Phillips sing the old great wobbly hymn, Hallelujah, I'm a bum, uh, or on the bum, reminded me of, of some of my motivations. I, as you suggested earlier, I sort of had it with, the, with my job. I, I was a tenured professor, but was not enjoying it. And so decided just to quit and, uh, again, embrace being a bum. I, I certainly knew that tradition and uh, felt like in some ways, you know, work is the blackmail of existence, as the situationist always said. And, and so I decided to uh, get out from under that blackmail and, and embrace being a bum for a while. So on one hand, it was very much a kind of uh, sense of reclaiming myself and trying to see if I could, in fact, survive on my own terms uh, outside of the bureaucracy and, and uh the, the weekly paycheck of, of academia. Um, there are a couple other things as well. One is that I've spent much, as you suggested with some of those book titles, I've spent much of my adult life uh, in one marginal uh, situation or another by choice and, and uh, out of research uh, with hip-hop graffiti writers and, and urban social movements and groups like Reclaim the Streets and, and Food Not Bombs and Critical Mass. And so this was simply, I suppose, another uh, case of, of looking for the margins and finding comfort there. Uh, but I guess the final thing was really, and we could talk more about this, wanting to look at consumer society and the consequences of, of consumerism uh, from a different angle, really from the from the sort of inside the engorged dumpsters as opposed to uh, from inside my office. Yeah, now you're certainly one who has uh, never been a traditional uh, academic. I mean, you're your uh, book, Crimes of Style, looked at, uh, as you mentioned, uh, hip-hop graffiti. And uh, your most recent book, uh, Tearing Down the Streets, takes a look not at what people consider traditional crimes per se, but maybe uh, behaviors that are kind of at the boundaries between legality and perhaps what we could call counterculture. Um, in uh, Tearing Down the Streets, you talk about so many different adventures you've had, whether it's... Um, I think it's called busking when you uh, you know perform on the streets as a musician and and is that right? Yes, that's right. And a whole bunch of uh, you know doing the uh, bass jumpings and and so many different things. So 
Of all of the different kind of non-academic ways you could take a look at deviance, why did you choose dumpster diving? Was it to take a look at, at consumer culture? Was this the, the most uh, obvious and expedient way to do that? Yes, I would say, well, a couple of things. One is it gave me a chance to actually, in some ways, you know, become the phenomenon. I think one of the dangers we face as researchers or writers or academics is, despite all of our good intentions, it's, it's difficult, I think, sometimes to get close enough to the phenomenon to really have a sense of it, not just intellectually, but emotionally and experientially. So I decided to, again, to sort of to become a dumpster diver, to live that way, not having other uh, income, not having a job or a book contract or, you know, a tenure position, allowed me, certainly, in no way I would what I want to suggest I suddenly became homeless or became an uh, impoverished person. But as best I could, it did force me to make decisions on the streets and to uh, live in that kind of way as well. Uh, so in that sense, it was part of tr who I was trying to become, and, and I guess in some ways being honest to what I wanted to find out. But as you say also, absolutely, it was a, I thought that you know, it was a, chan a rare chance really to see consumerism and to investigate its consequences uh, from the angle of those who dig through the trash of consumerism as opposed to simply you know, accounting for how much we consume as Americans or that sort of thing. Okay. And uh, I'm sure listeners of this program know a lot of the statistics because we've focused on consumer culture before, but uh, do you have any statistics about, uh, you know, for example, the United States is, what, 5% of the world's population, but we consume, you know, X percent of the world's goods? Yes, well, I don't have the numbers on top of my head because, uh, as, if you know me, I'm, uh, numbers aren't my uh, forte. Uh, I think you know sometimes numbers mask as much as they reveal. But but I, I would, for example, cite the recent World Institute study that talked about uh, you know the United States consuming ever more of the uh, of the world's resources, and sadly uh, that that pattern is being exported along with our military uh, conquest and and other patterns. I think we're clearly exporting that sort of hyper consumerism, so that the World Institute and others are finding. We now seeing those kinds of patterns of hyperconsumption emerging in uh, you know middle class uh, worlds uh, around the, the globe, and so in that sense, uh, you know, I guess beyond numbers, it strikes me that this is one of the most profound problems we face is the not only the consequences of, of global capitalism in terms of exploitation of child labor and destruction of local markets, but a just a voracious consumption of, of planetary resources. Sure, and I think the number uh, we uh, we have an ad busters. Uh... You know, kind of culture jamming cart that we play every once in a while, and I know it's it's kind of outdated, but I believe the numbers, which really aren't as important as just illustrating the disproportion, but uh, the numbers are that we're about five percent of the the world's population, but consume twenty five percent of the world's natural resources, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, yeah, we right. get the, we get the point. So uh, I want to remind listeners that they're in tune to KUCI and Irvine 88.9 FM. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Jeff Farrell. He is the author most recently of Empire of Scrounge, Inside the Urban Underground of Dumpster Diving, Trash Picking, and Street Scavenging. So uh, how did you begin this this odyssey, if you will. What was it like waking up one morning and, and knowing that uh, you were about to begin an eight-month uh, journey? Or I don't know if you knew how long it was going to last, but you know, knowing that uh, for the next, uh, for the uh, foreseeable future, you were going to be involved in this kind of world. 
Right. Well, first of all, you make a good point. It turned out to be eight months because I wound up with an academic job after eight months. But two things there. One is I certainly did not know that. In fact, to be very honest, at that point I was quite happy to be outside the confines of, of everyday uh, alienated labor. And so in that sense, I was facing, actually, to be honest, quite happily a, a, an unknown future. Uh, and I've certainly continued to dumpster dive on a daily basis, uh, even though I'm now back in academia. Uh, but, but secondly, I would say I found it profoundly liberating. Uh, it, was, it was a remarkable experience to sort of take charge of one's own life and to see if through ingenuity and uh, pedaling my bicycle and getting to know other trash divers if I could learn how to survive from this world and uh, in fact I did I found it actually relatively easy with as long as there were some accommodations made uh, to survive but as you say it required a openness to uncertainty and a willingness to sort of embrace the future as it unfolded as opposed to the usual sense of you know of, of uh, leases and apartment payments and, and uh, paychecks and that sort of thing. So I suppose on one sense it was dawning, but I found it really more enjoyable than anything else and tried to really commit myself to that. I did not present myself to folks as an academic or a writer because at that point I wasn't. I was simply uh, trying to live this way and learn from other people how to do so. Is dumpster diving legal? I know that uh, that's not a very straightforward, uh, there's not a straightforward answer. Your yes. book talks about some of the legal ambiguities of dumpster diving. Could you just give some examples? Sure, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was certainly my other driving motivation. And in tearing down the streets, the previous book, I discovered uh, a remarkable sort of clampdown on everyday life and certainly the everyday lives of marginal folks in urban environments, uh, you know, through laws targeting the homeless and prohibiting sleeping in parks and, and this sort of thing, and laws that are obviously being used to drive homeless folks out of. Uh, central city areas. So my sense was that this is what was going on as well with dumpster diving, and I'm afraid I found it even more starkly than I anticipated. Um, uh, laws increasingly that outlaw the possession of a shopping cart away from the premises of a of a grocery store, <clears throat> which of course, excuse me, takes away the primary uh, means of, of accumulation for many homeless people. Uh, laws in Houston and elsewhere that literally outlaw the lifting of a dumpster lid on the grounds that that creates a, a public nuisance. Uh, in, in Fort Worth and elsewhere, very aggressive code enforcement against anyone who accumulates materials or tries to resell them. And so you're right, as a criminologist, I really feared what I would find, and in fact I did find that we were seeing a sort of legal exhaustion of the margins, that for folks who were trying to carve out or were forced to carve out existence on their own, it was being made more and more difficult by uh, an increasingly tight net of regulations and enforcement strategies. I think it's so interesting. It's just another example of a a society, a criminal justice system, a legal system that rather than trying to get at the some of the root causes, if there are such things, uh, simply tries to deal with symptoms. So uh, rather than create a uh, a uh, habit of consumption that doesn't produce so much waste that would lead to dumpster diving and right. rather than try to create an economy that can provide for everyone they simply you know pass these uh, regulations that you're not allowed to lift the lid of a dumpster diver or you know walk around the town with a, a shopping cart or uh, one of my favorites was uh, the uh, the dumpster diver who was looking of course for uh, cans and bottles and and plastic recyclables and uh, was warned that if uh, he picked up a, a beer can 
that had a little bit of, of alcohol remaining in it, he could be cited for being in public with an open container. <laughs> That's am, I, right. am I getting that right? That's right. I, one fellow I met, a fascinating guy who uh, actually was on, was disabled in a wheelchair, as was his wife, and could not make it on his disability check. So it rigged his wheelchair to uh, cruise the curbs of, of the neighborhoods and, and uh, pick up cans, but again was afraid that he might be arrested for moving about uh, with an open container because, as you say, there might be a speck of beer left in a can. And, and I think further uh, further outrage comes from the fact that much of this is presented as aesthetic, as an aesthetic issue or an issue of beautifying the city, that it's somehow unappealing to see one, someone pushing a cart or lifting a dumpster lid or with some accumulations of copper or brass on their back porch. And so, as you say, what a, what a tragedy that not only do we not address the kind of world that creates, on the one hand, hyperconsumption and waste, and on the other hand, whole groups of folks forced to live from that, but that we actually, we being city governments and, and uh, uh, upper-class uh, business interests, uh, define that as really an issue of how the city should look and, and not wanting to displease our eyes by having to see folks uh, scrounging for a living. As you say, just outrageous. And, uh, of course, the issue of, of food, not bombs, which we don't need to get into too extensively here, but uh, listeners of this program are certainly familiar uh, with food not bombs, and interestingly, Orange County, California, has uh, several several food not bombs chapters. Who would think that in uh, nice, conservative, and and wealthy Orange County, uh, there's so many chapters of food not bombs? But of course, we know that not only here in Orange County, but throughout the country, and uh, particularly San Francisco and Berkeley, uh, police departments have cracked down on uh, food not bombs because they take. Uh, otherwise discarded food and uh, cook it up and give it to uh, homeless or the hungry in uh, in the park. And of course, it attracts, you know, a food distribution line. And uh, who would think that that would be something criminal? We Usually the kinds of messages that we encourage individuals, at least in grade school, to go out, go out and do. And then when they do it, of course, they're criminalized. But uh Absolutely. It, it is remarkable. We really do, without overstating it, see the criminalization of aid. I think just as you're suggesting, with food not bombs, you know, being denied permits to serve food and then busted for not having permits. Uh, here in Fort Worth, uh, one case I discovered and, and talked to folks about a little uh, community church that serves mostly uh, the immigrant community, uh, opened a uh, sort of a charity shop and then was busted for not having a, a permit to run a shop. And so then, had to, as you saw in the book, had to go through these contortions when someone would ask in their, in their broken English, how much? Much is this uh, shirt? They'd say, "Well, there's no price, but we often get 25 cents." So, uh, as you say, I mean, uh, somewhere between uh, mean-spirited and a, and a sort of pervasive uh, clampdown on survival, I would argue. I, as I said in the book, it's you really you don't want to overstate it, but you're struck when you see the accumulation of these laws and strategies, but with the notion that really, uh, you know, it's the old consume quietly and die. That there's really not much space left out there except the private home and the mall. Uh, in which to solve problems or to address the needs of other people. And I think that's one thing certainly I wanted to do with the book was to show just how large that underground is. As you say, it is Orange County and Dallas and Fort Worth and Houston and New York. Uh, those folks are everywhere, and they're doing great work, but increasingly they're doing it uh, against the law or against the impetus of the law. Well, one of your uh, your motivations was to take a look at uh, consumer culture gone awry. So oh, yes. why don't you tell uh, our listeners some of your favorite things that you found while dumpster diving? 
Well, uh, you know, I often get asked that question, and, and it's difficult to answer only because the uh, fines were, were so pervasive. If you can imagine it, um, I found it. Uh, I'm sitting here in my, in my office at home and, you know, just looking around, uh, video cameras, uh, still cameras, uh, stereo systems, uh, DVDs, um, uh, framed photos, uh, antique silverware, uh, glass doorknobs, uh, glass bricks. Uh, clothes, shoes. Uh, most of the clothes I still wear. Most of the shoes I wear are, are scrounged. And that ha- that after having given hundreds of sets of shoes and clothes, of course, to shelters and to those who needed them. So it's really remarkable. Someone was saying uh, the book almost sometimes reads like a underground department store because there's simply everything you would find at a mall uh, is is in a dumpster a month later. Uh, some of them, you know, remarkable finds. I mean, you know, behind Victoria's Secret, twelve. Victoria's Secret mannequins, or uh, just recently, by the way, about a week ago, I found a Trek 300 Navigator bicycle, uh, apparently bought brand new, never ridden, left out in the weather, and then buried in a dumpster, so um, that's now my transportation. Uh, So everything from, you know, high-end bicycles to uh, 100-year-old antiques, uh, the dumpsters are full of them, and the trash bags are full of them. It's funny that uh, I liked that, uh, the Victoria's Secret uh, scenario in the in the book uh, it kind of reminds me. I know that uh, you talk a lot about uh, in your book evasion, which uh, listeners of this program will uh, probably know from uh, the the folks at Crime Think. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite uh, episodes in Evasion, which is the story of uh, an individual who spends, I think, a year you know traveling the country, not contributing whatsoever to the uh, economy, whether he's a, a freegan as uh, as it's called or yes. just. Having a good time, he uh, goes to a, an arcade where they've got the the skee ball, <laughs> and uh, you get the little tickets, and you know when you score points, and then you turn the tickets in for for prizes, and of course you need thousands and thousands to get a prize worthy of uh, all that <laughs> time, and he would just dumpster dive in the back of video arcades and find all of those uh, discarded tickets right. and turn them in and and get the prizes, and then trade them back at Walmart or, or the like. Right. And uh, it's, it's just amazing what, what people uh, throw out and uh, how um, you could go ahead and give waste a second life, whether it's, again, legally or sometimes kind of on the, on the borders. But um, tell our listeners about an individual you met named uh, Dan Phillips, who really seemed to have uh, quite a skill at giving discarded objects a second life. Well, yes, I, I must say, if, if nothing else, the book was worth doing to, to meet Dan Phillips. Uh, of all places, Dan Phillips uh, lives and, and works in Huntsville, Texas, which your listeners may know is the notorious you know, Texas death machine, uh, death house down there, not far from, from his house. And so here Dan is in the belly of the beast, um, and yet what he's doing is his training, actually, uh, I found out, was, was as a dancer and, a, and an academic uh, and, and some other background characteristics as well. But again, uh, tired of that and decided to build homes for, for the poor, uh, but in a remarkable way, which is that Dan takes used building materials, <coughs> excuse me, which he gets both from uh, lumber yards and from people's donations and again from scrounging the, the landfills and builds remarkable houses, houses that have recently been featured in Fine Architecture magazine. Uh, he's a, he, he, uh, you know, hickory nut doorknobs and uh, old shower stalls that are now skylights and uh, two-before cutoffs that are made into turreted uh, stairwells. And even more amazing is that Dan hires folks without skills at minimum wage to build the houses, uh, teaches them to be carpenters, and then sells them the houses, uh, financing them himself if need be. 
be. So the person now not only has a home, but has a skill that they now can use to uh, to do uh, some meaningful work. So it really is remarkable uh, what Dan has accomplished. And I think that shows what what we can do if, as you say, we we're creative about and and take a collective sensibility about taking these castoffs and putting them back into uh, not only into circulation, but really making them the foundation for for people's lives and for uh, a sense of hope and, and social change. We're speaking with Jeff Farrell. He is the author of Empire of Scrounge, Inside the Urban Underground of Dumpster Diving. It is available at NYU Press. Um, the book reads... Uh, the, the book certainly doesn't read like uh, the traditional academic book, which is certainly a good thing. Um, at the same time, you can't help but find a lot more theory and and metaphor than than one would expect without it really hitting one over the head. How is dumpster diving and your examination of dumpster diving kind of a metaphor for contemporary culture? Well, and, and, and more importantly, contemporary political culture. Right. Well, I, you know, uh, first of all, I, I appreciate that. I take that as a compliment uh, that doesn't read like an academic book, and that's certainly intentional. I, I think we really must quit just talking to each other. And, uh, you know, the, the irony that often academics and intellectuals take pride in how uh, unreadable their work is, uh, that's not only uh, self-serving, it's also a great way to marginalize yourself from from being a public intellectual. So uh, that certainly was the intention, was, was to write a book that people might enjoy or, or, or actually find uh, some pleasure in reading and not the usual sort of academic tome. As you say, that I think in no way does that mean that we don't do analysis or critique. And so, uh, as, you, uh, as you suggested, for example, I, I found, I'd, I began to record the origins of the objects I was finding, and I found, for example, after Christmas, people discarding uh, Christmas treasures that had become part of their family's lives, and yet when you flip the treasure over, it was made in Malaysia or made in China. And so, even on, on a kind of global scale, I suppose a, a permutation on think globally, act locally, I, I suppose it was a, a global critique that I was finding in people's trash, which was, here are the origins in a, in a world economy of what they have now defined as their treasures or their traditions, and yet, of course, they're fraudulent in the sense that they were their, their children's treasures are made by other children who, who have no treasures. So uh, on that level, it seemed to me it was a window into the circulation of goods in, in global capitalism, uh, but, but even more so, it was a, I found it to be a remarkable way to simply document the pervasiveness of, of waste, not as an abstraction, but in it literally on what I was hauling home on my bicycle, and as I talk about in the book, uh, you know, clothes with the tags still on them, bought apparently, I, I suppose, in a, in a flurry of consumption, never worn, um, gifts left over from a baby shower that had never been opened. And so clearly, you know, going all the way back to Thorsten Veblen, here was conspicuous consumption. Consumption is a kind of ritual or a ceremony, but with no need attached to it. Uh, whatsoever. So it did seem to me a beautiful way to, and a very, again, I use the word existential, I guess, a really sort of experiential way for me to experience and, and, and try to document the consequences of, of our society, uh, not as an abstraction, but but day-to-day down in the trash bags. Yeah, and I think some of those examples about, you know, thinking uh, globally by acting locally, we have to remember that every time we throw something away, particularly something that's that was uh, manufactured overseas, 
we're really setting in motion a whole chain of events where there's going to be international trade, which means that there's going to be, you know, diesel fuel required to ship the stuff overseas. There's going to be probably child labor taking place somewhere else. There's going to be, you know, outsourcing and downsizing and things taking up a landfill and global warming and so on and so forth. And these are things that, you know, we don't want to burden people every time they throw something away. But it's really something to be to be considered that, you know, can this go to a Salvation Army or a, a Goodwill? Can this uh, this piece of clothing go to a thrift store where someone, you know, some young street kid would probably love to, to, right. to I mean, come on. Uh, and I think that that's uh, it, it really is important to to think of trash uh, every time one throws something away as, as a metaphor for for something bigger, as well as just the, the short attention span that uh, we seem to have where one day something is just our prized possession and the next day it's tossed aside like uh, yesterday's news. Great point. I think that's an excellent point. And, and again, if that short attention span is not just a failure of our own, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, intellects, but, but certainly programmed into us and, and taught to us through advertising that, you know, the turnover of fashion and design and, and next year's, you know, faster computer is a selling of panic in some ways that we're in, in, meant to be in a, in a perpetual panic to consume the next wave of items. Well, as you say, we can certainly critique that on the level of consumption, but we also have to look at how the, the discards then become part of that process as well. And I would say, too, again, not burdening ourselves, but simply being aware that I think many of us, I'm sure many of your listeners, take pride, I certainly do, in, in you know, making sure all my uh, uh, recyclables are sorted and that my uh, you know orange rinds go to my compost heap and and perhaps on our college campuses that we have recycling bins and that's wonderful but one thing I found is that for every one act like that there are a thousand acts committed by those who are increasingly defined as criminal which really save tons of materials from the landfill and as you say in that sense uh, back to the wild we sort of throw a, throw a wrench in the machinery of global capitalism because there are in any major city thousands of folks out there uh, keeping stuff from the landfill and hauling scrap metal into the scrapyard and, and as you say uh, giving new life to clothes and food and so as you say to be aware of that and to realize that those are acts those are progressive acts that we need to uh, honor and, and perhaps learn how to engage in more uh, and certainly not ignore as some kind of uh, problem. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to open the discussion up a little bit to a broader uh, topic, which seems to be a running theme in your work. You, uh, I don't know if you personally coined the term cultural criminology, but it's been a theme in your body of work uh, over many years. And it's something that I think really uh, is driven home by the book uh, Empire of Scrounge. Could you uh, define cultural criminology and uh, link it back to your book Empire of Scrounge? Sure, be glad to. I, I did actually coin that term. I, I, you realize you're getting old. It's, it's been a decade ago in a, in a book back in 95. And, and my notion was, I guess, uh, uh, really two dynamics that intersect, I think, politically. Uh, one was that it seems to me it's impossible to talk about crime or justice or transgression or law and order at this point in our society without seeing those as cultural constructions, that is, that they are manufactured for us by primetime programming, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, politicians and, and media people, uh, et cetera. So 
it seemed to me that most of our sensibility about crime and justice, most of our, our fears about, about certain kinds of crimes or our, our lack of awareness about others is not through direct experience, but through a mediated symbolic environment that is carefully orchestrated for us through, through sound bites and official statistics and this sort of thing. And so it struck me as someone who was trying to be critical politically and do progressive work that along with, you know, confronting the death penalty or, or racism in the criminal justice system, we had to confront the media construction of crime and the way in which that's sold to us. But that also suggested to me that another level on which we've got to look at culture is that those who are defined as criminal, uh, those groups who are marginalized and often criminalized unjustly, have their own way of life and have their own symbolic environment, their own, their own meanings, uh, whether those are, again, hip-hop graffiti writers or low-rider cruisers or, or homeless folks scrounging for aluminum cans. And that part of our duty, I think, as, as critical intellectuals is to acknowledge and begin to try to understand the dynamics of their lives and the way those symbols and meanings and emotions emerge in situations. So it seemed to me on every level that uh, an important political lever in trying to work toward a more just society was to think of criminology, if by that we mean sort of the critical study of crime and justice, as a cultural enterprise, as something that had to be done in the realm of representation and symbolism and meaning, and not just through official stats or you know objective research, that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I got to tell you that uh, you certainly helped me get through graduate school because it was uh, 95, I think, was my was when I started grad school. And I uh, came across this book, Cultural Criminology, and uh, opened up the, the intro and saw your discussion of the criminalization or attempted criminalization, if you will, of the art of Robert Maplethorpe. Yes. And uh, truth be told, that is precisely why I decided to, to go to graduate school. I've always been fascinated with the the criminalization of of speech yes. and whether it's flag burning whether it is obscenity or pornography or the idea that music lyrics could somehow lead to bigger and uh, you know y you listen to a record and then you go out and you commit suicide or try to right. kill a cop or whatever and I really had no idea as a you know a bright-eyed grad student in, in a you know a quantitative program, how I could go ahead and uh, pursue this line of inquiry by looking at kind of how how culture itself is uh, subject for for criminalization, and I came across your book and have moved forward from there, always using using your work as CC, it can be done. And it is it is relevant. So uh, with that, I certainly want to thank you for for coining that term and uh, for staying in, in academia, at least until I get tenure. So <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> there, there, uh, the book is titled Empire of Scrounge Inside the Urban Underground of Dumpster Diving, Trash Picking and Street scavenging it's available at nyu press i would also uh direct listeners to uh tearing down the streets adventures in urban anarchy which uh, i believe is on pale grave is that how you pronounce that's it? right yeah uh, st st martin's pale grave right yeah. and then uh if you want to get maybe a little bit more academic check out cultural criminology which is available at northeastern university press. That's right. Uh, or you could just do a Google of Jeff Farrell. And uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, and you definitely have to come back. Oh, I'd love to, Jared. Thanks. It's a real pleasure talking with you, and be happy to, to rejoin you anytime. Take care. Thanks very much. Thank Bye -bye. you. And uh, we'll be back to uh, wrap up, take a look at the OC Peace Community Calendar uh, right after this. Or after we 
make sure that the CD player is no longer on snooze. There we go.
And we are back on Justice or Just Us. I want to thank my guest once again, Jeff Farrell, for uh, being here through the telephone this morning to talk about his uh, book, Empire of Scrounge. And uh, some things coming up in Orange County. Uh, certainly the Orange County Peace Coalition is having its uh, regular meeting this Saturday at uh, the Sisters of St. Joseph Justice Center that is uh, located in the city of Orange. And uh, let's see if I've got all the details here. Uh, it is at the Sisters of St. Joseph Justice Center on uh, Batavia. Where's the address? Where's the address? Uh, I don't have the actual street address. Go figure that. But it is uh, at Batavia, uh, just north of La Veta in Orange, right off of the 22 in Classroom 1. That takes place at 10 a.m. For more information, you could call 714-637-8313 or log on to OCPeace. Dot .org other things taking place of course there is the monthly anti-war demo at the Laguna Hills Mall this Saturday uh January 14th you can uh find out about that and uh in San Clemente San Clemente food not bombs every Saturday at 3 p.m. uh provide free food for anyone who shows up so following in our discussion of food not bombs uh, they'll be serving in Maxburg Park at uh, 3 p.m. every Saturday. And, uh, of course, you can always log on to ocpeace.org for uh, more information about that and uh, for all uh, uh, peace-related activities. Getting a little tongue-tied. Go figure that one out. Uh, anyway, stick around. The Politics of Food is coming up in just about six minutes. So with that, I want to uh, thank you for listening today. Do tune in in the next couple of weeks. Some exciting programs. Taking a look at anarchist theory and why anarchism isn't taught in the academy. Why do we talk about Marxist theory? Why do we talk about democratic theory? Of course, Marxism is democratic. Why do we talk about libertarian theory, republicanism, conservatism, liberalism, but not anarchism? We'll uh, be taking a look at that. Uh, I'm going to try to uh, have a program looking at the life and work of R. Crumb. There's the new R. Crumb handbook out and uh, some other things in the works. So you just don't want to go anywhere. Uh, keep tuning in. And uh, with that, what did I queue up? Oh, I want to put this on track too. Uh, and do tune in to the best in KUCI talk and KUCI programming. Log on to KUCITalk.org where you could find out about all of the podcasts, including podcasts for this program. So you got no excuse now. Now I'm done. It's KUCI and Irvine. Peace. <laughs>